0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners. or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am uh, David Hostetter. We have Stefan Hostetter. How
1: are you doing?
0: We have Saren Kaster in the booth, who's going to give us an interview at the uh, third segment of the show, around 1140, with David Suzuki. The a new documentary of his so that's exciting and we're about to be joined by Lauren Latour on the phones yes as we continue to discuss these uh, this uh, nationwide indigenous uprising against Canadian oppression
1: yes uh, and if I feel like it's you know, every once in a while on the walk here, uh, there's a there's a moment that sort of reminds you a little bit about uh, about the interconnectedness of everything. And today, uh, as I was walking in, there is an absolutely massive uh, protest uh, heading towards Queen's Park in support of the Ontario teachers uh, and their fight with uh, with with Doug Ford and our and and, and our wonderful government here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And it, it felt like a it felt like a reminder that uh, that that these are, these are all interconnected issues as, as one, uh, as one tries, to, tries to make a better world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, the heavy police presence on uh, U of T campus today. Helicopters, bicycle cops, every kind of cop is here. Trucks. I'm here. And uh, I'm just going to can get into this, uh, this info now. So uh, um, unprecedented in its 42-year history, Via Rail has cancelled 530 trains since February 6th, is temporarily laying off around 1,000 employees, and CN is laying off 450 of its workers amidst the now two weeks long insurgence of rail blockades that have been sprouting up around the country in protest of Canada's continued theft of Indigenous land. There are many non Indigenous people involved in the protests as well organizing online and in their communities to keep the pressure on the government to recognize a Witsuwet'en title. Nick Eagland, for the Vancouver Sun, quotes Vancouver organizer Natalie Knight as stating, quote, There's always NGOs, but they are not, and I can't stress this enough, they are not involved in on-the-ground organizing. It's truly grassroots. It's people who have, who have community connections to events, who have been up to Unistoten, who are involved in other similar struggles in the city. Eagland also quotes Ivan Jury of the Red Blade, Alliance, Red Blade Alliance for Decolonial Socialism as saying, quote, what's inspiring about this movement for me, as I've been organizing for more than 20 years, is to see the mass character of it. It's really not reducible to a group. The rail blockades are being set up independently by various indigenous nations, showing support and solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en struggle to assert the authority of its traditional leadership in the face of the monolithic advancement of so-called Canadian interests. In this case, these Canadian interests are, of course, a liquid natural gas pipeline, and the jobs and revenue the project is expected to generate, slated to be built through unceded Wet'suwet'en land. There seem to have been, however, several alternative pipeline routes suggested by Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, but as former uh, former Green Party uh, MP Paul Manley said, quote, Coastal Gaslink decided that it did not want to take those acceptable options and instead insisted on a route that drives the pipeline through ecologically pristine and culturally important areas. The intended route also goes uh, through an area known as the Icy Pass route, which has a er- high erosion risk and requires many new roads to be built for access. The route that Manley was referencing still goes through Wet'suwet'en territory, but would pass further north. It is also a route that Pacific Northern Gas would like to use for its own expansion project. Andrew Kerjata for the CBC quotes Wet'suwet'en environmental coordinator Mike Ridsdale as saying that the alternate uh, proposed route follows, quote, already heavily disturbed areas along the Highway 6 corridor and away from highly known cultural areas, as well as away from the Skeena headwaters of salmon spawning areas that the Wet'suwet'en rely on. Coastal GasLink, which is run by TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, says they rejected the route because it would lengthen the pipeline, cost more money, it would be closer to urban communities, would impact four additional First Nations who had not already been consulted, and they say their pipe is too wide to be safely installed there. The B.C. Supreme Court heard these arguments when it ordered uh, at the end of last year that the pipeline should proceed in the route that the company favors. Kurjata also notes that the Wet'suwet'en had proposed another route which would go through an area already damaged by flooding caused by the Rio Tinto Alcan Mining Company in 2015. Instead, the pipeline will go through pristine traditional territory in part because, as Coastal GasLink told the CBC, quote, there is no route available that would uh, avoid traditional Wet'suwet'en territory. To change the route to avoid Wet'suwet'en territory at this date would require major environmental assessment work, which would not be feasible under the timelines uh, to which we have committed. But the two alternate routes proposed by the Wet'suwet'en still go through their territory. Therefore, we have the company, backed by assault rifle-wielding RCMP, rolling through indigenous land and dragging out Wet'suwet'en land offenders by the dozen, since, as certain uh, politicians have been stating over and over again regarding the rail blockades, Canada is a rule-of-law country, and in a rule-of-law country, the law must rule, and law enforcement must enforce the rule of law, since this is, after all, a rule-of-law country. These same politicians, however, such as Peter McKay, are actively cheering on angry vigilantes taking the law into their own hands, such as those who dismantled a rail blockade in Edmonton this week. But if we consider carefully the legal questions around the pipeline, we must accept that Canadian courts and Canadian politicians have officially recognized that this land does not belong to Canada. And as lawyers Kate Gunn and Bruce McIver write for the First People's Law website, while uh, Canadian courts have held that provincial governments may be able to infringe Aboriginal title, the requirements to justify infringement are very onerous. The provincial government has not attempted to justify its infringement of Wet'suwet'en Aboriginal title. So, after the arrests of 28 people on Wet'suwet'en land earlier this month, hereditary chiefs vowed to continue fighting, and Chief Namux said that uh, those arrested were prepared to get arrested again in defense of traditional Wet'suwet'en territory. Solidarity actions began popping up everywhere in response and have caused a general clogging of Canadian exports, with trains being canceled, slowed or stalled, and shipping vessels waiting empty off the BC coast. The longest-running rail blockade is in the 16th day now, in Mohawk territory near Belleville, Ontario, at Wyman Road in the Tyendinaga Township. Uh, We will be speaking with a man who has been camping out at that blockade at the beginning of our second segment. Kenneth Deer of the Mohawk Nation recently stated of the blockades, quote, "...it's ironic that the Canadian government would complain about being inconvenienced when the Canadian government starved our people to get a better deal in treaties. Railways got really, really rich on Indian land being expropriated and taken from us, and now they're paying a small, tiny price for all the profits they have made over the centuries. We're here to support the Whitsuitan chiefs in their struggle. When they are satisfied, when they have come to an agreement with the government of Canada, they can say thank you for your support, and you can take down those barricades." That's the solution. It could be solved today or tomorrow if they really wanted to. Some blockaders are being handed lawsuits and are being jeered at and threatened by counter-protesters, but new ones keep popping up, and new actions and demonstrations are constantly being planned in addition to the blockades, and as UBC sociology professor David Tyndall explained to the Vancouver Sun, these protests aren't going anywhere. He said, quote, sometimes there's some kind of compromise between protesters and authorities and they meet in the middle somewhere or the protest just kind of wanes uh, and winds down and people lose interest. But I think that it's different a little bit because there are some moral and legal issues. On Wet'suwet'en territory, the central players are the hereditary chiefs who are trying to assert their rights and title on their traditional territories. They're not going to be likely to be willing to compromise and say, okay, well, we'll take half our rights and half our title and meet you in the middle somewhere.
1: So I think it's important uh, as a quick as a quick heads up in regards to that sort of very first, very early on point that that Dave made about losing the uh, the set of people who the, the CP layoffs, apologies. Uh, it is important to note, or the CN rail and the Via rail uh, lay- layoffs, there was, uh, some of these were in the works since last year. There's like sort of some conversations around exactly like the timing of them is particularly, uh, you know, lined up to this. I'm sure it's currently causing them some issues, but the, the, the um, but like I still, but, but there was like, it's. I don't know if we can like as much as I think this the the, the rail companies would like to sort of directly connect it. It's not it, there's not exactly a one to one ratio here between what between the layoffs in the in the, in the blockades. Okay, uh, there were sort of conversations already ongoing. Via Rail announced last year it was going to lay off 1,600 people, mm. uh, and so while obviously this is definitely directly affecting their their business, it's it's I don't think you can make a one to one comparison. And interestingly, uh, yesterday Canadian Pacific. Um which uh, it came out in, uh, came out in support of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau actually getting in direct dialogue with the hereditary chiefs. Uh, so this is the railway in 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 BC, uh, and they sort of release, had a press release basically basically pushing for this, uh, both stating that it was difficult, but uh, was difficult for the business, but also basically stating that this is the path forward that they're that they're supporting this conversation mm-hmm. that should be going forward. So I think those are just two. I, I, it muddies the narrative, I think, of people trying to sort of make this like business you know business versus things. I think mm-hmm. there's a it's a much more complicated conversation. But now I think we do have Lauren online.
2: Yes, you do. I'm so sorry for the technical difficulties. No worries. Um, You're no I think I was I think I was going to bring up a similar point that um, well I don't know to harp on the same points I'm always harping on it's, it's disappointing to see the story to, to at least see the headlines that were that, that media has been publishing lately um, obviously for, for readers who are maybe taking the time to, to dig into the articles and actually read the whole thing um, which is potentially the minority at this point. You're, you're maybe getting a slightly more nuanced story but I've seen numerous headlines that are sort of this statement that, like, oh, Trudeau is willing to meet with hereditary chiefs, blah, 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 blah. He's, he's sort of extending this this goodwill. And the hereditary chiefs are, are standing their ground and saying, like, yes, of course, we're willing to talk with representatives of the Crown, but only after RCMP and coastal link workers have, have left their land. And, and we're not necessarily seeing that happening, because I, I know we've heard that RCMP is leaving, but it's under really sort of specific conditions. So... I don't know. Like I feel like we're we're seeing some movement, but but not necessarily everything that we know the government is capable of acting on. We're not necessarily seeing that even um with the with the sort of meetings with with parliament that Trudeau called earlier this week that seemed to be insufficient because again, he was he was meeting with with parliamentarians and and cabinet ministers before he was sort of extending that goodwill towards towards the hereditary chief. So like that's that's something that's been frustrating me a lot lately and then just recently i think just yesterday there was a report released by um by a think tank out of canada uh, the name of which is escaping me right now but basically um it's a it's a story that they published talking about how there's a crown corporation that's looking to invest in coastal gaslink at this point to make sure the project is capable of going forward and has the financial backing um and it's it's the same it's the same crown corporation that invested in in TMX i believe um so I don't know. Understanding that the government is is really whole hog on this project uh, continues to sort of disappoint and disillusion. Yeah.
1: And 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 even the even the conversation that was there was yesterday about uh, that sort of the news that came out saying that the RCP was going to sort of quote unquote move off the land, which is sort of in the first thing that even that report. So the head top top headline makes it seem like it is that they are capitulating to what is being asked. And then if you read if you dive in deeper, you get to the fact that it's really just where their base is going to be. The the you know, in that the mo, nothing really is actually changing uh, beyond beyond that sort of beyond where they're actually positioned at the Beginning of the day, um, and 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 so like I do think that you were right that the, the need to dive a, like one, like at least into the first paragraph of it, of, <laughs> of a story beyond um, the headlines feels very important uh, as we move forward. But Dave, you have another sort of little bit of news. So let's go to that and then we'll we'll jump back.
0: So according to a map from Real People's Media, there have been 18 separate rail blockades set up so far around the country, in addition to the numerous road and bridge blockades, not to mention the occupations and marches. The blockades have been so effective that companies have started sending letters to Trudeau to help them uh, stop losing money, and some outlets are stating that certain retailers could start facing shortages, but that might just be speculation. Trudeau addressed the House of Commons on Tuesday, uh, the 18th, regarding the situation, in which he admirably argued that Canada needs to step back and be patient and listen, and acknowledged some of the horrendous situations Canada has forced on Indigenous peoples. He's wary on the one hand to pressure the cops to act on the blockades, but he also seems to be afraid to meet personally with the Wet'suwet'en chiefs on their land for fear that such capitulation would legitimize the blockades and give uh, give license to future protests. He also failed to give any concrete actions he would commit to to get the work done, and mostly presented a bunch of well-meaning rhetoric about unity and patience. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer then spoke, saying that Trudeau should have clearly denounced the rail blockades as illegal. He then had the absurd gall to state that it is the Conservatives who are the ones who stand in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. Part of his point was that the elected band councils have signed agreements with Coastal GasLink because they'll get money and jobs, but he failed to point out that elected band councils are often told that such projects will go through even without their consent, so they might as well get some money out of it and that companies often have the weapons and power of the Canadian state behind them. There was also one Witsuiten band council leader who abdicated their vote because they didn't believe they had the jurisdiction over land outside of the reserves. Scheer also repeated the strange point that has been echoed by other conservative politicians and angry internet dudes, that the majority of hereditary chiefs are also in support of the pipeline. It's a claim I've heard repeated in a few places, but I've never seen demonstrated. It's also tremendously obvious that no conservative leader would ever be uttering the words hereditary chiefs if not for these blockades that Scheer so derisively n- denounces. And Scheer also, of course, said that the supporters of the hereditary chiefs were a small group of radical activists. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh actually called Shear's comments racist afterwards, but of the five leaders including Trudeau, Sheer, Blanchot, and Singh, it was Green Party leader Elizabeth May who actually deigned to state the real issue saying, quote, when indigenous people have had their lands stolen from them, their children stolen from them, their culture stolen from them, and efforts to annihilate who they are as peoples, we have to weigh our inconvenience against the challenge of the moment. This is not simple and it won't end overnight because it's based on a century and a half of injustice, oppression, and colonialism. But it's also based on the reality that since 1997, the Wet'suwet'en have had every reason to believe, based on the Supreme Court of Canada decision the federal government would come talking about what does it mean for that title, what does it mean that title for the Wet'suwet'en could be 22,000 square kilometers? What does it mean that the Supreme Court of Canada has said that their title and their indigenous form of government predates Canada Canada by thousands of years and has status in Canadian law? In a different context, Chief Woos of the Wet'suwet'en said, quote, as far as the economy and what is happening across the country, you see indigenous groups, the indigenous organizations out there, we're facing third world situations all on account of your rule of law that is not being correctly handled by all governments. If we're going to be alongside the majority of Canadians as First Nations, the first thing that uh, happens is respect. The Respect is the first thing that must happen. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh urged Trudeau on Wednesday to go and meet with the chiefs and appoint a special mediator for the talks. An Unistotin Solidarity Brigade email lists the demands of the hereditary chiefs. They are as follows. We demand RCMP to stand down and get out of our territories. We demand nation-to-nation talks to address long-standing violations of Wet'suwet'en rights and title. We demand our right to free prior and informed consent be upheld. We demand that the remote detachment, the Community Industry Safety Office, established by the RCMP on Wet'suwet'en territory, be immediately removed. We demand that no force or lethal weapons be used against Wet'suwet'en people and our supporters, and that RCMP refrain from preventing Wet'suwet'en people and our guests from accessing our territories. We demand that Wet'suwet'en people must not be forcibly removed or evicted from our own unceded territories. We urge RCMP to respect Wet'suwet'en law and to comply with recommendations made by the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, including the guarantee of our right to free prior and informed consent for any industry use of our territory. As of yesterday, it has appeared that the RCMP have agreed to move off Wet'suwet'en land, but the Prime Minister has yet to agree to visit the territory personally. A Unisotin Solidarity Brigade email sent last night reads, quote, B.C. Public Safety Minister Bill Blair told the media today that RCMP are willing to stand down so dialogue can begin without speaking directly to the hereditary chiefs about the matter. RCMP harassment and intimidation has continued with full force since the raids, and they have not made any actual movements towards leaving the territory. Unistoten is calling for supporters to come out to the front line. People who can stay at least two weeks and can take direction from Indigenous leadership are needed. Supporters who have never been to camp before are welcome. Chief Namek's told the Toronto Star, quote, If we're going to do a meeting, it should be on our territory. This is what we're talking about. Trudeau should come and see how pristine and beautiful it is. Right now I'm looking at a blue sky and sunshine and snow-capped peaks. You won't know what we're trying to do unless you put feet on the ground, breathe the air, have a look at the beautiful river, and eat the food here.
1: Yeah. I want to get, I want to talk briefly about the selective use of quote unquote rule of law, but I want to go to you first, Lauren.
2: Yeah. Um, sorry. I just want to jump back to something. Uh, I, I said just a few minutes ago that I didn't actually express very clearly. Um, but yeah, so, so the story I was, I was referencing, um, there's an article in the Star about it but where I heard about it. it. was from Oil Change International. And um, so there's a crown corporation called Export Development Canada. It, it is wholly government-owned. It is, it is a, for all intents and purposes, I consider it a branch of the government of Canada. And they're going to finance postal gas link, and loan approval could come as early as February 26th. So when we hear that um, Trudeau is maybe willing to, to budge on this or willing to negotiate or willing to have conversations with, the hereditary chief, we have to keep in mind that a Crown Corporation under his government is willing to fund this project. So so those words of good faith and and well wishes only extend so far because at this point the, the dollar of the Canadian government extends farther.
1: Yeah. Yeah and and this is, you know, in, in the amount of the number of different places in which the Canadian government is in some way invested in so many of these projects that it's claiming it is not that that it is that it will fairly evaluate is, is, you know, it's, it, it really brings to the lie, the, the lie to the surface. I think how, you exactly. know, what, like if you're, you, there's no reason to believe that a government that is heavily invested in these projects is going to assess these projects fairly just straight up.
2: Exactly. Uh, we, we have to question the ability of a petro state to ever be able to go into conversation with, with indigenous leadership and good
1: faith. Yeah, yeah. When especially when evaluating the the petro states that are, the attempts to run things through their land. Um, to, but I, the, to, to, to briefly go back to the, this sort of constant refrain of rule of law, though, just very briefly, it strikes me as, I, I, I guess, I, what I would say about it is that the two things. First is that when you understand the, when, when you're using the term rule of law and every, and whenever you actually get to a lawyer and the lawyer doesn't actually seem to agree with you, maybe you should recon, reconsider your use of the term rule of law. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the facts are that so, like when you actually, when you when there's lawyers consulted uh, and then there's a great article in the conversation which I believe just takes academics who work in these areas to actually hide, to, kind of, to identify what's going on and when you look at the, what the academics and the lawyers are talking about, they are very clear that this that that the, that the quote unquote meaning of the, the purpose of rule of law here or, or the or the actual what the law states is is anything but clear. And it, where it does state things, it does it does give power to the hereditary chiefs. And then in the second version of this is the idea that, you know, you're, you're seeing all these arguments about the blockades and how they must be torn down for the rule of law. And then you have those people who are calling for that at the exact same time are going out and say uh, supporting and encouraging the actions of, of I believe of of the of the yellow vesters in in Edmonton who sort of who took it into their own hands and vigilante decided to just to 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 go and dismantle uh, one of the blockades uh, outside of Edmonton and and that is clearly illegal like there's there's no question that their actions are 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 not equally as legal. No, there's no part of Canadian law that says vigilanteism is okay. Uh, and so and so the fact that they it's a selective use of the rule of law that is clearly being used by by these people and as soon as you get selective use of rule of law, you have to wonder to whom it benefits. And in this case the it, 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 who it benefits is the is the is the state uh, is the rich corporations that are going to push this through and the people who are fighting for it. And so it is to me it, when you ask, like you cannot just keep throwing around the concept of rule of law, when basically all it means, in to so my understanding, is those who agree with me, and and that to me is a is a is a is a big concern, or at least sort of undermines the use of the term. Um, but so we're we're sort of coming up towards the end of the segment, but I want to throw back to you, Lauren. If there's anything else you want to you want to jump in on.
2: Um, I guess yeah. Just just sort of reiterating um, some of the points that uh, that David was making earlier about obviously if if we have listeners out in out in BC and they have the capacity um, to to go to the the blockade at Unistoten and and physically support there, that's fantastic. But there are ways for people all across the world to to support the efforts of not just the Wet'suwet'en but Indigenous land defenders and water protectors where they live, um, whether it is donating money or donating time if you are in so-called Canada showing up at a blockade nearby to support with your body, with your time, with your money, um, there are ways for you to get involved and there are ways for you to help shift the discourse here because the only reason that, that this project is so high profile right now is because of people showing up on the front line and in solidarity blockades across the country. And and, and the conversation is, is drastically different than what it would be were these people not, not standing up this way. And, and you can be a part of that. And and your involvement really, really does have such an impact. So I would encourage people to to try to participate and support in any way they can.
1: Yeah, and if you're in Toronto, there is a family-friendly round dance and support happening in Queen's Park on Saturday at 12, uh, from 12 to 3, if you can make that. Uh, Thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, We are going to go to a music break now, uh, and then we're going to come back with actually an interview, uh, again, barring any more techno phone fun, uh, we'll interview uh, from someone actually live who's at one of the blockades here in Ontario. So we're going to come back with that, but right now let's go to a music break.
0: The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise three hundred dollars a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as one dollar. And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. <clears throat> Do we have are we with Kevin now? Yes. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for joining us. You're um, welcome. Now you've been heading to the Tayendinaga blockade, which has been happening for around 16 days now. Is that correct? You've been camping out there.
3: I was there last weekend from Saturday until Monday, and I will be on my way back um, this afternoon.
0: Nice. And can you just maybe give us a sense of what it's been like to be there, what the people there are saying, uh, saying to each other, saying to you?
3: Well, I, I have to say that while being there, um, I just was there silent and there in support and just listening to what um, what the frontline uh, warriors are saying and what they're thinking now you know they um, they they look at this in a much much larger context you know they the Anishinaabe people are deeply rooted in their teachings of history and the lessons from their elders and they believe in the in you know they, the the seventh. There's seven fires. There's a prophecy, and they speak about um, how the teachings that the world has been befouled and the waters turned bitter by disrespect. And they say that humans will have two options: uh, either materialism or spirituality. And they they look at the what's happening in what's wetting in the context of what's happening globally they think globally and they act locally and you know we talked about um the animals the billion animals that 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 recently burnt in australia and what from their perspective what that means to have that many spirits um you know die at once and that's in the in the context of of the international struggles of uh, and of climate—it's much larger than just what's happening in Canada. And I think that the um, you know the the narrative being driven to it to the actual front line is just the distraction of the of the global concern that they're looking at.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you say the narrative driven to the front line, what uh, what what is the what is the that narrative that's a distraction?
3: Well, the narrative of it being of you know of this of the the railway shutdown and, and it becoming a discussion about the shutdown and the you know the insignificance of that and and people being laid off and and driving the division in between in between the the people that are uh, you know between the people that are wanting a justice and the, and the other and. The non-native people that are getting laid off, and as we see some of the growing uh, racism and 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 whatnot out there.
0: And did you get any uh, sense? I don't know. I can't remember. It happened recently, I believe. There was a federal minister sent there to actually speak uh, to this the the Mohawk people at this blockade.
3: That was um, last Saturday. They had a, It was historic. There was a call out for people to join and to stand there at the tracks on Saturday to listen and to, to be part of that. And that's actually why I went down there Saturday, but unfortunately I was unable to be there for the 10 o'clock meeting.
0: Mm. And you're going back there now. How how many nights do you expect to stay this time?
3: Um, I'm not sure if I'll be staying overnight or if I'll just be going there during the day. I leave that up to, uh, up to them there. Um, I was there... Um, throughout the night last weekend. However, that might be different this weekend.
0: And I imagine it's quite cold. The people who have been there, are there people who have been there for now 16 days straight? Or are they um, maybe uh, switching off, going home for a few days? I can, I can imagine it's quite cold at night.
3: Yeah, there's, there is there is a bit of a rotation, but from what I saw, it was mostly uh, mostly the same same group of people that were around. There's an awful lot of support, though, being uh, with, with people coming there and offering, offering items, coffee and food. I was there on family day last Monday and there was a family that had brought their grandchildren there to, to be part of it and, and to stand with, stand with some of the warriors and listen to what they say. Um, you know, there's a, when you take a look at the context of 150 years of lies um, there's, there is some distrust with the general media, and and the people at the front line, because they're not really uh, addressing what they're trying to say at the front line. So when families bring their children there, the warriors are talking about the fact that they're doing this for them, um, to keep the you know to tell them that they're they're from a warrior's perspective, they see the um, the the fighters for future movement growing around the world that came across their turtle island last summer and and it's since gone away and from their perspective their non-native white-skinned brothers are should be doing the work that the warriors are doing now but they're not so the warriors look towards people that are not supporting and not standing on the front line they look at us as cowards because how can we let the, our children be, every Friday, be concerned about us not doing anything? And we are absolutely not doing it. And in the context of a billion animals burning in another commonwealth, the, the Anishinaabe people do not disconnect that from, from this pipeline. And that's the, that's the important, that, important message that they're trying to get out.
0: Mm hmm. And just finally, is there any uh, sense uh, among the people there about what the police might be thinking about doing about this, if they're thinking about moving anytime soon? The police, that is
3: my my time there. And this was, of course, a, you know, a handful of days ago. Um, there there's there's not much uh, there's not much concern about what the police are going to do, because ultimately, this is a bigger, much, much bigger story than just this pipeline. Mm-hmm. And um, what they're asking for is an, is an all as a call out to all existing um, climate related and human rights related movements to to stand up wherever they are in solidarity for uh, for the Anishinaabe people. So Extinction Rebellion, they're calling out Fridays for Future. They're asking for support. They're they're asking for uh, you know they're they're asking for people to look towards. Their teachings, you know, get online, Google uh, the, the Seven Fires Prophecy, the Eighth Fire, where they talk about the fork in the road and that there's two paths for us to take, and there is unity. And they, uh, there is a, a, a story that speaks of people of all color coming together, and I, that's the message that they're looking to get out oh, throughout uh, throughout this thing, I'm sure of it.
0: Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Kevin Guyan. Um, we hope you, uh, stay warm out there when you go enjoy them again today. And, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, okay. And now we're going to just, uh, you want to play it now? We can play it now. Okay, so we're gonna to go to just this Elizabeth May uh, speech in the House of Commons after Trudeau, Blanchot, Sheer, and Singh uh, said what they said on Tuesday. Just because it's quite an interesting speech, uh, if you want to give it, uh, give it a listen there.
4: Elizabeth, oh, merci à tous mes pour de de un peu, de la sur cette situation qui demande à tout le monde, qui exige pour, pour tout et tous de, de faire face à la réalité de injustice et le défi de réconciliation. This is a very important debate and this is a very important moment. In the constituency week, when I was home in my riding, one of my constituents said, as we discussed the blockades and discussed inconvenience and discussed what it means for settler culture Canadians to face inconvenience when Indigenous people have had their land stolen from them, their children stolen from them, their culture stolen from them, and efforts to annihilate who they are as peoples. We have to weigh our inconvenience against the challenge of the moment. And this one constituent said to me, Priscilla said, can't we focus on the opportunity of such a rich conversation? When I heard some of the words of my colleagues, the words of the Leader of the Official Opposition reminded me of something, so I, I flipped through to them. Their words heard in May, on May 4th, 19, uh, May 4th, 1877, actually, uh, General Oliver Otis Howard, speaking of the frustrations he felt of dealing with the ne per se and their chiefs as they discussed what mattered to them. And he said, quote, 20 times over and over, I hear the earth is your mother. I want to hear it no more, But come to business at once. This is not simple, and it won't end overnight because it's based on centuries, a century and a half of injustice, oppression and colonialism, but it's also based on the reality that since 1997 the Wet'suwet'en have had every reason to believe that based on the Supreme Court of Canada decision, the federal government would come talking about what does it mean The title for the Wet'suwet'en could be 22,000 square kilometers. What does it mean that the Supreme Court of Canada has said that their title and their indigenous form of government that predates Canada by thousands of years has status in Canadian law? We must not ever set out the notion that there is a rule of law on one side and Indigenous peoples on the other. Indigenous peoples have the law on their side, and maybe the leader of the official opposition referring to a small group of radical activists meant the nine judges of the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm -hmm. Because they're the ones who said, title is title is title. and Indigenous title is, quote, collective and intergenerational. And acknowledging that will explain why we stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en hereditary leadership. My colleague, the Honourable Member from Nanaimo Ladysmith, went up January 19th, met with hereditary leadership of Wet'suwet'en, came back and tried to—we've been trying as Greens to appeal to the federal government from the beginning, don't let the RCMP arrest people. Don't let the RCMP—that huge encampment, what that cost Canada, a whole year of a remote location of RCMP detachment encampment on the edge of Wet'suwet'en territory—it's very remote—my colleague, the member for Nanaimo Ladysmith, got there and found that, yes, they had offered an alternative route. This was acknowledged, by the way, in the injunction case that granted an injunction to Coastal Gas Link. The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs had offered another location that avoided the Queese Trail, but Coastal Gas Link, according to the court, unilaterally rejected the alternative. The federal government has to step up here. I'm glad the federal government is stepping up. It's true that on February 5th in this place, the Prime Minister said that this, quote, this is an issue entirely within provincial jurisdiction, unquote. That's true insofar as the the pipeline goes. It doesn't cross a provincial border, but it's massively untrue. When we talk about Indigenous rights, the, the Delgamuk decision of 1997, the Chilcotin decision of 2014 and the big question, when First Nations win in our courts, what is the statute of limitations on us doing anything about it? The Wet'suwet'en have been enormously patient and the Unistot'en camp has been sitting there for 10 years. It is not a question of grande surprise that there is resistance to the people Canada. The Indigenous leadership across Canada has been saying for quite some time, if someone marches on your territory, we'll respond as if they've marched on our territory. This is an aspect of solidarity, but for the solidarity of Indigenous peoples across Canada and their allies, people like me, people who are settler culture Canadians who recognize that this is a turning point for this country, where we actually mean what we say When I heard this brilliant comment of the brilliant Senator and former Justice Murray Sinclair from the other place, who said, what is this once again, as in Paul Simon and the boxer, a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. We must set aside our pocket full of mumbles. We must be serious in our intent. This is a land issue. This is a title issue. This is a justice issue. And it is only, very incidentally, a pipeline issue. C'est clair maintenant, on doit faire face à la réalité de l'injustice. On fait, doit faire face à la réalité et le grand promesse de réconciliation. Maintenant, c'est le moment de dire oui au peuple autochtone et non à les, les, les cris comme tout le monde dans des autres discours qui dit que c'est pas c'est une, un groupe radical. C'est pas vrai. C'est un groupe qui sont engagés dans le grand projet de justice. Now is the moment for Canada to face our moment of truth. Our moment of truth, justice, and reconciliation. Thank you.
5: All right. So this is Aaron, your host, speaking. So what we're going to do, we're really tight on time here, but we have an exceptional interview with David Suzuki. So we're going to forego... Uh, the second half of the music break. I'm just going to go right into the interview. Um, And so really quick, I'm just going to tell you what the interview was about, and then I want to add a note because uh, we're very aware of the, of course, of the rest of the coverage that's on the show. So the interview itself is with David Suzuki himself as the host of The Nature of Things about uh, his 40 years of hosting it about the concept of aging well. And so this is Aging Well Suzuki, a look at growing old, uh, on CBC's The Nature of Things. It's going to be airing uh, relative to today when we're actually recording this next Friday. That will be February the 28th. Uh, it's going to be available uh, at 9 p.m. as well as on the GEM streaming service before and after. David Suzuki is amazing. Nature of Things is amazing. It's an amazing documentary. You're going to hear that from the interview. But the last thing I want to say before we play it was I was recording this yesterday, uh, Temperative, and I knew. I knew what content was going to be on the show. I knew what was going to be around this, and I wanted to be sort of con- aware of that. so Instead of asking David Suzuki to comment on the politics, I tried to do something else. I asked him to comment on the concept of ikigai. So please, listen all the way through the interview to the end, and we'll come back. And if we have even a minute, we're going to talk quickly about ikigai, us here in the studio, okay? Here we go. David Suzuki. David, you talk about living well and identifying that these are lessons for life. Uh, and and not just about being old so before we really dig into this topic please tell the audience what to you what is living well
6: well to me it it means accepting that we have uh, you know a lifespan that is determined by both your genes and uh, the life experiences that you have and you would like for me in the last years of your life uh, to live as well as possible before you die. We're all going to kick the bucket. But you want to try to ensure as uh, healthy and uh, and good uh, uh, a way of life you have uh, before the end. There's a great deal of interest now, and the original idea for the show was, let's look at all the science that's going to extend our lives. You know, you can grow fruit flies that live 50% longer than than normal Uh, could we do that in humans and I'm going bullshit (laughs) you know like for most people you start getting up to 60 70 life starts decreasing in terms of its quality who wants another 50 years of a shitty life I'd rather have maybe 10 years of a good quality life before I die I mean that's where I think the effort should be made
5: yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, uh, I'm sort of the local here on the Green Majority. I'm sort of the local, you know, high tech nerd and I'm the tech advocate and stuff. I love technology. I love, you know, I certainly don't think technology is going to save the world, but, you know, I think a lot of good can be done with it. So with that mindset, something I that really stood out to me watching um, the, the piece was that there were a lot of high-tech tools used to assess data and create reports and and assess things. But at its core, really, all the things that they were getting you to do and all the recommendations really boiled down to things that thousands of years old we've always been doing, gardening, karate.
6: Very, very. That's a very astute question. You know, we tend to be dazzled by the technology. And it is amazing what they can do. I mean, I was blown away by the the instrument that looks into your eye and actually can see a three-dimensional representation of the retina, and you can then twist it around and look underneath. And I mean, it's it's impressive. Science and technology's great strength is in description. And, you know, we know so little that these new instruments and enable us to see more and more of uh, the natural world in much greater detail. And But we shouldn't, you know, assume that that means technology is somehow going to salvage us or, or take us and uh, to live longer or, or, or better. Technology is good at description, but not prescription. So, um, yeah, I, I think that... What was impressive about the technology we did encounter in that film was how advanced and sophisticated it is. But in order to live well, we go back to what the body evolved to do and be. And, uh, you know, the obvious thing is the most important thing is exercise and then diet. And finally, um, you know, your social, your place in, in society, having meaning and purpose in your life. Those are all things that technology is not going to solve.
5: Well, and and that's very much what I took from your – I mean you sort of mentioned this to reduce it to a simple quip, but you sort of reduced it to a quality versus quantity issue. And I think really for me what I took from from watching the piece was that – you know, a lot of that, you know, the quality versus quantity was that the the quantity has to do with extending like the body. So I'm I'm going to train my muscles so that they're useful more, you know, longer. But the the other side of that is sort of what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of living longer if that if all you're going to do is work out and, and keep your body alive? It's sort of well, it's missing yeah, half mean, the equation.
6: A, I mean, it's it's a means it seems to me to uh, uh, an end is which is you're you're happier or you're more fulfilled or whatever, the, the The longer you can keep that body uh, active and healthy. It's, uh, you know, um, working out at the gym on a regular basis, that's not the end. It's just a means to the way that I live. And uh, it means uh, extending the time when I don't need all of the the crutches or the canes or the wheelchairs or whatever that is, that may become part of become part of my life in later life
5: and so that's uh that's actually uh, you're, you're segueing uh, perfectly to a little bit later in 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 the piece but uh, Carl uh, I'm forgive me I'm gonna mangle his name honorage honore
6: yeah honore
5: Carl honore um, so what I have written down here in my notes is the word shame but so let me tell the backstory so there Carl honore put on a suit which simulates uh, the worst case scenario for—I'm not sure if it was to add 30 years or to simulate a certain age.
6: He, he was—he was 51, and it mm-hmm. re- it changed him into an 81-year-old man.
5: Yeah, and the and the biggest thing that he said—you know—you asked him, you asked him how he was feeling about the thing, and the, I mean, he said a number of things, but shame was really the takeaway.
6: Uh, I for agree. Me. That was really striking. That—that that it is the helplessness. It is the sense that you can't do things on your own now that fills you with with shame and and one shouldn't feel that way I mean that was the most moving uh, section of the film for me because I I thought back to when I was a younger man and would be impatient with people who are bent over and you know uh, we have to wait until they load the airplane or um, you know they got to get onto the bus and find a place and I, and i was so impatient and i i just feel ashamed of of what what i did because i was just you know putting them in my mind as oh they're old mm-hmm. without accepting these are people that have lived a lifetime they've learned a lot they've actually got stuff there that that we we can learn from and there was just such a lack of respect in in uh in my younger head and uh that uh, putting Carl into that suit really brought that back to me. How unthinking I was when I was a younger person.
5: Yeah, it it makes me think of something a, a high school biology teacher said to me once, which was a sort of a, it was a trick question to make you think, which was how many of your direct ancestors survived through childbirth. <laughs> it was oh, the answers wow. of course all of them yeah. and and the point and the point of that was to to really make you think about the scope of you know chances that needed to happen to get you where you were um, but that's really transitioning us i think to one of the other really major takeaways for me which was the entire documentary really highlights i think it never really comes out and, and says it directly but for me it just sort of highlights the role of cognitive science in physical health
6: isn't that incredible that i agree with you that that was the shocking thing, you see, ever since Descartes in the seventeenth century, who said "I think, therefore I am," he began that whole idea of the separation of mind and body, and of course, the mind was the most important thing, superior, blah blah blah. But that that separation, I think, is really terrible, because uh, it you know it's it's uh, where the two are so intimately tied together. The idea. Um, that the mind is, is free from the body and the body somehow doesn't need the mind in order to function. That's crazy. What was striking to me was the brain is just in there and you need to stimulate it and keep it going for all, all kinds of things. I never think about balance, you know, and and these simple things that we put our bodies through and the old brain is there and if you distract that brain, uh, you're gonna have difficulty it's uh, that was a, a striking a striking lesson uh,
5: speaking of striking lessons we um, we managed to identify a few uh, myths popular myths one of them being is that old people are grouchy <laughs> happiest well, people reported happiness over 55 myth debunked. You no
6: know, I didn't know that I didn't know that I <laughs> yeah and I you know it makes a lot of sense because when you're younger you're driven by a lot of pressures, you know, a drive for money or power or fame. You want to get a promotion. You want to get a raise. You want to get sex. I mean, there are all kinds of things driving you that in old age, you're relieved of all of that. So no wonder what Carl says is, is right. We live in a, in a you, you know, like you're happy when you're a child and then it, it goes downhill, but then it comes back up the older you get as you're relieved from all of these, these uh, extraneous pressures.
5: Yeah. And so uh, we're going to, I'm of course, love the, the piece. I, I have, there's one thing that's really not highly substantive, but I, 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 have to say it anyway, which was the, the documentary is worth watching just for the three second clip of you riding a skateboard. Is that in the seventies? <laughs> when was that taken?
6: <laughs> that was a long time ago. You a looked, long... you
5: looked at amaz- me. I mean, you still look great, but you looked at am- me. It was like, wow it
6: looks really good that was back when I was in my 30s
5: (laughs) my goodness (laughs) I wish your hair has always looked amazing that's just a fact
6: (laughs) so uh... I have hair I have hair (laughs) and that's thanks again to my genetic uh, ancestors
5: so we're uh, um, I, I, if I had my way we would have you on every week uh, and I mean that sincerely um, but we do not have unlimited time so I would like to but we're not entirely out of time but I want to make sure to give you some room because there there was a there was a concept at the end of the documentary that didn't it didn't Necessarily serve the majority of the airtime; it kind of came closer to the end, but it resonated with me personally. But also because um, I'm, I'm sure you listen to our show every week. But it, just so that you know as well, you know, on the show, same show that this interview will be airing, uh, we'll be covering the ongoing protests and and all sorts of stuff. I don't want to get sucked into politics during our interview, but you know, just to acknowledge that there's a lot of people out there who are suffering psychologically and physically and just undergoing a lot of. You know trauma, and so with that, uh, I wanted to ask you to uh, define and perhaps expand just on the idea of ikigai.
6: Ikigai is a, a wonderful concept, which is to have, to me, having uh, a meaning uh, in your life that uh, that drives you on, a purpose, and uh, you know it, it's we're a very we evolved as social animals. I think the social aspect is very very important to us and in the past of course it was family extended family that really gave you a place in in society and you know after the karate class with his elders when after the filming was done I sat around with them and you realize that the the karate was just a small part of what they were getting out of it they had developed friendships they looked forward to coming because their friends were there and after the the class is over, you know, they go off and they drink coffee and they've got their little gang and it, it gives them, you know, they, they just can't wait to come to the next class not for the exercise, but for the people that are there and I think, you know, that's that's as much an icky guy as, as anything. For me, it's it's about family and, uh, you know, family gives me my my goal, my drive in life is all about trying to uh, improve the, the prospects for the future of my grandchildren they give me the joy i've just come back from 3 days in victoria where my youngest daughter is with her three young kids and uh, i come back so energized and so joyful so so happy uh, it's and that's my ikigai, and uh, you know you you saw it in some of the individuals, you know, like the the tailor and uh, the the bodybuilder and uh, the curl the hundred year old curler, and these are all people that still have ikigai because they got something that that drives them on. All
5: right, so that is the end of our interview. Uh, you can see uh, David Suzuki host his own. He's actually the feature for once of The Nature of Things. So Aging Well Suzuki Style is an informed entertaining investigation into the aging process uh, by one of Canada's best-known seniors. Uh, and that will be on CBC's The Nature of Things Friday, February 28th at 9 p.m. or 9.30 in Newfoundland, as well as any time on, uh, I believe, anytime after that. I might be wrong about that, sorry. Uh, <laughs> on the CBC Gem streaming service. Uh, Ian, Two minutes and 40 seconds, I wanted to go to quickly on the studio because I pulled David back to Ikigai very intentionally so that we could sort of recenter the show. So in two minutes, Stefan, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, I I think actually I'm going to take not necessarily the concept, but actually his answer, Uh, his answer that that what it was for him was actually bringing together people. Uh, and being with with people, because if there's a if there's a trend, uh, or if there's a if there's a through blind from from both the the call out uh, that Kevin made quite clearly for for international support from green groups to you know towards towards understand this towards this larger understanding of uh, of of indigenous solidarity to the the fact that. That, that as Lauren was mentioning early on in the show, uh, the the importance of of solidarity actions that are occurring to to protect, uh, to honestly, you know, to be a part of the protection of these of the of of the of these blockades and of the Witsujin actions in in the camp itself. uh, it, It speaks to this larger concept of of solidarity and of coming together as a people. And and so to me, that is sort of the, the, the through line I would make there, which is that, you know, when you're looking for purpose, uh, purpose so often ends up being about st- showing up for your community, being there for the people who know what what they need to. And if you can, and how you do that is, is is you know, is on is is up to you and and how you find your way to 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 move that forward but i do think that that is the is a central point here how do we show up how do we keep being there for for everyone who who needs us uh and and the more we learn how to do that the better off we'll be